Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Ginny O, founder of Wonder Studio, a product strategy and UX design firm. We chat about how Ginny built a multi-million dollar business as a digital nomad and her motivations to build a remote company. We also discussed how Wonder helps SaaS companies tackle churn through product strategy and UX design, how to test your ideal customer personas before building a product, and the importance of having a solid information architecture to avoid building a Frankenstein product. Ginny also shared how product copy impacts product design, how to conduct a usability audit, and how to effectively roll out a product redesign without impacting the existing user's experience. I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. These, these don't just gun for revenue in the door. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Jenny, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. For the listeners, uh, Jenny is an entrepreneur who's lived, studied, and traveled around the world. Uh, and it's her passion that really uh, for exploring that led her to a digital nomad lifestyle from which she was able to build a multi million dollar product strategy and design firm. Uh, in 2016, she started Wonder to empower startup founders with better user experiences. And since then, they've launched over 250 brands and worked with several Fortune 500 companies such as IBM, Geico, WWF, and Dollar Shave Club to help reshape their product strategy. So the topic of today, obviously, then uh, is going to be revolved around product strategy and design and sort of what the role that it plays when it comes to retention and engagement uh, to help you tackle churn. Uh, so Jenny, maybe you just want to give us a little bit about the history. So like, as I know you're traveling around quite a bit, uh, just before the show, we talked about like that need for sometimes the feeling to settle a little bit, but uh, where are you at the moment? Like where, where's the next destination that you're off to? Yeah, actually, it's funny because of all the destinations, I'm in kind of a boring place at the moment. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, but I am heading off to Mexico after this um, and then eventually heading myself over to Europe in Portugal. Very nice. Where are you heading off to in Portugal? Um, I'm doing a little road trip. It's going to be one of my girlfriend's bachelorette weeks. So uh, we're starting out in Lisbon and then renting out a car and going all over the country. 
Very nice. Yeah, Lisbon's probably one of my favorite cities. Like after traveling in the last couple of years, we went to about 17 countries. I think Lisbon was one of the favorite cities because it had that really good uh, uh, like city vibe, but then you had really good surf and people and food. I'm sure you're going to love it there. Yeah, it's so nice. I've been once for a, for a web summit a few years ago and I just loved it. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So, uh, like, as I alluded to in the beginning as well, you've lived this digital nomad lifestyle. You were able to build this multi-million dollar product strategy firm from a remote uh, lifestyle. Like, talk us through that a little bit quickly. Like, how did you get started? Like, what was the inspiration? And how did you end up sort of growing this company uh, throughout? And why remote? Yeah, I mean, like anything good in life, everything just kind of happened organically. So, before I started Wander, um, I had my own uh, mobile tech startup that just never really got off the ground. And uh, for a couple of years, I was freelancing. Um, so I was uh, doing user experience design um, and a little bit of copywriting as a way for me to pay for my travels. Because after my first tech startup failed, I, all I wanted to do was travel the world. And that actually kind of creeped into what I'm doing with Wander, uh, which is continuing to build uh, the company remotely. Uh, travel is such an important part of my life and uh, my core values. Um, and I think it's an amazing way to fuel creativity within the organization. And so we've decided that even as we're growing to just continue to build and scale what we're doing remotely. Uh, we do get together as a team uh, a couple times a year. Um, depending on, you know, whether it's a skill-based, like we're trying to learn a new skill or we're flying the team out to meet with the clients or doing a few different workshops. We do get together um, a few times a year. So it's not like we're completely remote, but I'd say we're about like 90% um, remote of the time. Yeah, that's very cool. And I think in the context of retention itself, uh, having a remote sort of environment really helps with that employee retention, even though it's not the topic of the podcast specifically, but giving them the freedom and flexibility to work from where they want and to sort of have more control over how they work. I think it's a superpower motivator to uh, like stick around with the company and um, like sort of drive and fuel that energy from that travel as well. Yeah, of course. So we actually um, did a little experimentation last year where we had the entire team um, in LA for the month of July. So we rented out a little office space and had everybody come in every day, Monday to Friday, like a normal uh, company. And what was funny was right around beginning of week three, we had a couple of our team members tell me, I can't wait to go back home uh, to our like respective um, uh, places because we want to be more productive. And I just thought that was really funny to hear that, that they want to be remote to be productive and efficient at what they're doing rather than coming into an office. It's really weird that because I think it's counterintuitive to most people's beliefs. Like when people think about <laughs> uh, like remote, it's sort of think, okay, you're at home, you're on your own schedule, you're sitting on the couch and you're just relaxing and then working when you feel like it. But when you get into a remote environment, you realize like how much more productive you can be when you have that absolute focus and uh, you're not sort of in that office room uh, having cooler like come, people coming and tapping you on the shoulder or being disrupted and by uh, certain things. So I exactly. see that a lot at our show. Cool. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Wonder and uh, the, the firm, sort of uh, your areas of focus. Uh, and like, maybe you want to talk us through what a typical client looks like to you, how you work with them, how you help them. 
Sure. Um, so we're we're an award-winning product strategy and user experience design firm, and most of the clients that we work with, um, a, a big chunk of them, I'd say about eighty to ninety percent of the companies that we work with are either startups or Fortune 500 companies that have a SaaS product. Um, so, you know, we're helping them to, uh, through a different types of um, external influence. So these companies already have existing product teams within their organization, but the reason why they work with us is to have this external influence and spark of innovation uh, within their product team as well as what they're building out. Um, and we do that through a number of different services, such as our user experience audits, workshops, usability testing, and of course, design and implementation, uh, which uh, helps our clients require more users, increase engagement, and of course, reduce churn. Very interesting. And I like as well that you say you have that focus with the uh, SaaS companies um, that tend to gravitate towards you. Uh, talking about like the topic of like increasing engagement and uh, decreasing churn, are there any specific like sort of examples you could share with us where you were brought into a company to help with the product strategy and the design uh, where you saw a marked improvement uh, in engagement and uh, helped with churn in the company? Yeah, so when we look at churn, um, the way that we're approaching it with any organization is not so much like in the number and saying like, okay, we're going to come in and help you reduce from I don't know, 15% to 5% uh, churn rate, but more so looking at it in a holistic way of how do we how do we get your customers as part of your product development at every phase, sorry, how do we get your customers involved in every phase of that product development? And so a lot of times when we work with our clients, um, where they're faults and where the problem lies is within onboarding. Um, even within larger organizations, onboarding, I'd say, is probably the biggest problem that we are working on with our clients. Um, and either the companies don't have any kind of onboarding at all, or the onboarding is too complicated that the users are trying to skip through it and get straight to the product. And in terms of the organizations that don't really have onboarding per se, they're almost um, setting themselves up for failure. Um, and so that is an example of where our team comes in to really just digest uh, what's happening in that part of the product development um, to look for ways that we can improve. Yeah, we've seen this quite a bit as well. Talking through the show is that uh, ten, like companies tend to sort of really focus on the features and uh, trying to keep up and catch up with the customer demand for what's next. And often, like what's really neglected is that onboarding experience is that first touch of the product. Um, let's talk through that in a little bit more detail from like the, the product design lens uh, and when it comes to the work that you do. When you get approached by a company and you come in and you see that like onboarding's really been neglected and you need to get started, like what are your typical steps and that you advise companies to take uh, to try and rectify the situation? Yeah, so a couple different things that we're doing. So if it's a web application, um, we're asking them to see if there's any kind of data behind why um, 
there might be bounce rates or churn happening um, on their platform. Um, and we'll actually utilize tools like Hotjar to give us more concrete uh, quantitative data. Uh, but we're also looking at more so qualitative data uh, through the help of the customer success team, understanding where the problems lie within their customers, what they're telling us, um, uh, that they're having trouble with, and then mapping all of that out in a customer journey uh, map. Just again, just going back to onboarding. So we're not mapping out the entire user journey per se, but the user journey for onboarding and seeing where the pain points lie, where is the friction, and how can we improve um, that uh, that experience so that it becomes a little more frictionless. So do you want to talk us through just some more practical examples? So in theory, I get it, but maybe we'll talk like a real life example of a product where you've taken through this process and what were some of the steps uh, in that user journey that you highlighted that needed to be uh, included in the onboarding? Sure. Um, so one of the examples that comes to mind uh, was a recent project where the client was, um, they were collecting a lot of, very private information. Um, so they were seeing a lot of drop-off rates in the sign-up process. And even within um, the onboarding after the user signed up, they've noticed that a lot of users were dropping off because even when they're even after they sign up, they're still asking for a lot of information like social security number, your bank information, and things like that, where the users didn't have the brand trust and the um, and didn't feel safe giving away that information. Um, luckily, the client had already set up uh, a lot of analytics for us to start observing and analyzing where the drop-offs were happening. Um, so it gave us a, a lot of good numbers to start working with and uh, a good good starting points for us to look at. From there, um, just drawing out different scenarios of, okay, why, why, so like, why isn't the Caesar giving us the social security number um, and looking at that specific page? And it was because the, uh, the platform wasn't really giving concrete information about why we're using, um, like, why the user needed to give us the social security number. So things like that where we realized we need to give more information and build more trust with the user for them to give us the information that we need to give them proper onboarding. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. And it goes to sort of like uh, the power of really solid copy and product copy and specifically micro copy as well. Mm -hmm. uh, again, this is like one of those things that really gets left to the last minutes and it's sort of thinking about design first and then copy second and what information needs to be highlighted. It, it tends to be a big mistake that I see the companies make. And then often like you don't realize that how many opportunities lie in just making copy and text clearer for users to understand, alleviate some of that stress. What is your oh, yes. process around that? Sorry. What is your process when it comes to sort of uh, thinking about what information goes onto a page and how you prioritize uh, design over copy? Yeah, I was actually going to mention um, the importance with copy. Um, we had another we had another client where the 
copy in their platform was really inconsistent and that was creating a lot of confusion within the user. And I'll, I'll go back to your question in a bit. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, they were using, so it was a marketing SaaS product and they were using the term campaign interchangeably with another term uh, journeys. And so they were creating a lot of inconsistency of what that campaign versus use, uh, journeys meant. And, um, and so those are those are little things that you know we're trying to detect when we're doing a usability audit. Um, so going back to your question of what's our process in terms of looking at design versus copy. Um, so first, when we work with our clients, for we want to get a holistic perspective of what's going on with the organization, not just on a product perspective. So is there a feedback loop happening between the product team and the customer success team? And that's really, really important, especially you know, if it's a, a hundred plus employee organization, it's hard for us to get that set up. And so we're, we're um, our hope is that when we work with clients that that, set, that feedback loop is already set up. And if it's not, that's something that we do try to encourage and help our clients um, get that in their organization. Um, and from that, so we're getting user experience uh, feedback and looking at the overall information architecture um, and how that can be improved uh, during the user experience uh, during the user experience journey. Um, in terms of copy, I mean, that definitely goes hand in hand with design because um, you want to portray the right messaging, right information, and essentially build trust with your users. And it can't just be design. You have to be able to do that with copy as well. Um, so yeah, I, I can't emphasize the, enough the importance of that. Yeah, it's super important. And uh, I like as well, you're talking about really building that relationship between product and customer success. So you have that feedback uh, loop cycle going on. Um, why customer success specifically? Like are there other teams within the organization as well? For example, maybe support uh, that could also be feeding back that loop and that customer thing. Like why specifically do you try and foster that relationship between customer success and product? Yeah, I think the customer success and, and slash support team is sometimes underrated at how important their roles are within product development. Um, they are basically the eyes and ears of the customers. And without that team and without that feedback loop, the product uh, product development team is, is building out the platform almost blindly. You know, we can look at quantitative data and see where we could improve, but we also need to back it up with qualitative data and what the customers are saying and really adding them at every part and every, um, yeah, every part of our, our product development phase. Yeah, that sort of that qualitative data needs to be fueling what you're going to be looking for in the quantitative data. Yeah, and, and really understanding your customers to prioritize where, um, prioritize features and where you need to focus on in terms of your user experience um, enhancements. 
Yeah, and I think like user experience as well is one of those things like we talked about in the beginning. It's something that like sometimes an afterthought for companies as well, like and how critical it can be. And you touched on a usability sort of audit that you do with companies. Uh, what are the typical steps that you do in an audit? Like if you're advising a company and they wanted to go out and do a usability audit for their company, what are some of the steps that you go through? Uh, like maybe you want to talk us through uh, them stage by stage. Uh, sure. So a lot of different things go into our usability audit um, that I had briefly mentioned earlier, which is, um, you know, talking to the customer success team and interviewing them and key uh, stakeholders within the organization um, and then diving into the product. And what usually happens is um, a lot of the companies that we work with have what I like to call a Frankenstein product, you know, really, really powerful tools, but in the early days, they didn't have a lot of product designers, so it's a lot of engineers that are building and building, and um, you know they're adding in what the customers tell them that they want without really stopping to uh, reconstruct or take a look at how the information architecture was built. And so that's a big part of what we're doing um, with usability audits is looking at the information architecture. Um, and a lot of times we're just deconstructing it and, and starting from the ground up just because it's just become this massive product. A lot of the users don't understand how to navigate through it and they might not even find uh, features that they came into uh, use just because they didn't realize it even existed. Uh, again, because of uh, poor user experience and how the information architecture is laid out. Yeah, definitely see that happening as well. And when you don't have designers early on sort of thinking about the challenges, uh, you tend to get this, as you say, Frankenstein experience. Uh, once you go through this, though, and you've come up with sort of uh, areas uh, where you see issues, you have uh, have a better information hierarchy that you want to present and sort of re do a redesign. What do your process look like then? Like, how do you ensure that you don't disrupt the uh, user experience like, from existing users coming in from one day to the next and they're going like, hey, wait a minute, like what's been going on with this product? Um, how are you thinking about the different audiences uh, in that context? And what do you do to sort of mitigate some of the risks around potentially upsetting old customers uh, changing their habits? Oh man, this happens all the time. So it, it is it is a very, very difficult part of our job, which is um, how do we mitigate uh, risk of you know having churn from existing existing uh, users. And so sometimes the best uh, solution is to keep a legacy product um, as it is and then uh, offer the new the new and improved uh, product as kind of like a um, an alternative, um, how do you say, like a, like a switch on and off button. So you can go back and forth between the legacy product and the new product. Um, it's not really the most recommended, um, but that is an option that we've worked around before. The alternative is to just incrementally sneak in the new user experience throughout the platform. So it's a very, very slow integration because we don't wanna change too much where the users are confused because they're so used to the previous user experience, even if the, even though it was really bad, they're so used to it and so integrated to their um, daily use that like when we introduce some new uh, features and new uh, experiences, they might uh, they might get really upset. So 
the way to go about it is to just really slowly um, incrementally integrate it into the platform until, you know, over a year span, we're switching it more and more. Um, and how are you measuring that as, like, as you go through this process? Uh, so like in both cases, one where you sort of have that option to switch back and forth between the two versions and then the second sort of like uh, that iterative approach. Yeah, it's, you know, measurement within our company is difficult to do, especially when we're working with organizations that are quite large. Um, so this is where we depend a lot on that feedback loop with the customer success team because a lot of the data and a lot of the measurements that we receive is based on the qualitative um, customer feedback. Okay. Um, and then so like this as well, I think it was actually Basecamp is one of the companies that ended up, they wanted to redo their product and they wanted to redesign it. And then they got to this point when they realized it was so different from the original product that they ended up keeping both. Uh, and you could either uh, choose one or the other um, at some point. So, like, have you ever come to this point where working with customers and realizing the information architecture was just so drastically uh, wrong that you almost needed to propose a new product and new product structure? Yeah, we, we had a couple of clients that um, are still using the old legacy product. And they had to because they have customers that were using their platform for over 10 years. And so for them, even though the existing user experience is so bad, that's what they're used to. Yeah. And I think one of the things like in this uh, that's like often not really considered is uh, the types of users that are using your product at different stages. And I've, I've only sort of like become empathetic towards this lately when uh, my mother actually contacted me from time to time. Uh, I set her up with a WordPress uh, website and uh, like uh, her and my father like reach out to me maybe periodically once every three months sort of with this like things have changed drastically like it's a completely <laughs> new system now and I'll go and I'll log in and I'll see maybe like two or three things moved around a bit but nothing really that drastic and I think this sort of just sort of goes towards like you have totally different types of users, totally levels of different sophistication and making these big design changes, like you sort of need to really understand who the audience is and who you're focusing and optimizing for, I guess. So, exactly. Like, yeah. How much like of the, the user audience themselves and their sophistication do you take into consideration when making design decisions? Like, and how much does the stage of the company matter as well? So when we think about, uh, the different phases of growth and uh, targeting early adopters or early majority or the late majority? Like, do these sort of thoughts come into your mind when thinking about your design work? Mm, that's such a great question. Um, I definitely have to say, like, the older organizations um, have to be a lot more careful about, you know, what they're implementing um, uh, what new uh, what new changes that they're implementing because like I said we had a client who is I think at least 10 or 12 years uh, running and their old users will not adopt to the new platform that we've designed out there's no way like they're just so used to how things were that um, having them use the new platform even though it's it's the same feature same functionality uh, it's almost like trying to onboard new users all over again, and then you have to worry about churn. Um, 
I guess with startups, it's a little bit more forgivable for them to make changes because you are expecting early adopters and you are expecting these users to be a little bit more forgiving about changes and uh, in experimentation. Um, whereas I think once you're an established organization, it's it's much harder to have um, the freedom to experiment. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, so I definitely like it's something uh, that's one of those challenging things just to think about as you grow sort of uh, decisions like from design to marketing to customer success, everything sort of starts to change as you start to hit these different stages of growth and the different phase of the market that you're going after. Uh, talking though, again, about like market that you go after and uh, services specifically, like I see as well, Wonder, you offer quite a variety of design services. So from like brand strategy and development to user experience and audits and then user interface and visual design. Um, when we think about sort of the user experience uh, itself, like how do you see the user experience flowing between brand and product? Uh, and what do you see some of the companies that are doing this well? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? So, uh, like, I think sometimes as well, we have these two different uh, groups of designers or do two different teams that sit in marketing or sit in uh, product design. And uh, what tends to happen is that you have a group designing for products and then a group designing for marketing initiatives. But then there's this not this coherent experience that flows from one to the other. Like, how important do you think it is for uh, brand and for, like, marketing to have this coherent uh, appearance and flow into products so that's one united experience you know it's funny is um that separation is very very real like we'll work with clients on building out their entire product but then they have a separate marketing department that um, has their own separate team and they've got their own separate vendor list and uh marketing or design agency that they work with that's completely separate from what we're doing um i do think it's so important that there is communication between the two teams, but it really rarely happens. Um, I wish there was more of it, but uh, you know, again, it just kind of depends on the client's organization. But it is important to have that co uh, coherence, um, look and feel, and uh, messaging and vision throughout not just the marketing, but also throughout the product as well. Um, and use of going back to use of copy, you know, we want to make sure that it's consistent, not just in the product, but also marketing, vice versa. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think like some of the good examples for this is like, for example, Slack, uh, how you just have this really solid, consistent experience throughout from arriving to the site and sort of the tone of voice and the design and sort of this friendly feeling that you get with it uh, and that flows straight into the product as well, like this communicative uh, style that they do. It's And it really sort of adds to the overall user experience. I think that's also what I was trying to touch on before is that like when thinking about user experience, people just tend to focus on product, but not really like your user experience really starts from the first time they see an ad. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah. And like, what are some of the things that you like to work through with customers when thinking about this as well? Like, is there any sort of methodology that you try and like bring people on board with marketing and product strategy? Yeah. And I, I, I think 
this is the reason why like I love working with startups is because like we get more of an influence on how to build their entire user experience, not just within the product, but the user experience of the whole company, like how the, how the customer interacts with you upon the first impression, all the way to customer support, like that is user experience. And I think a lot of organizations don't understand that. Um, so when we work with large organization, which you know is the makeup of most of our clients now, that is so difficult to do because we're just working um, directly with the product team. So yeah, I mean, my, my whole point was that uh, user experience isn't just, just the product experience itself. It's just encompassing every part of the company brand. Yeah. Uh, cool. So I think like what I wanted to touch on then as well now is going back as well to the, the problem of churn and retention. Um, what role do you believe that sort of user experience and user interface design plays in uh, churn and retention? I mean, I definitely think, um, especially where I come from, it's the most important part um, of reducing churn. Um, you know, I do think churn has to be looked at in a holistic point of view, um, because even if we build the best user experience um, product that there ever was, if the customer support team can't answer their phone, um, then that's not gonna help reduce your churn rate. Uh, so it does play a very, very important part. Um, but to add to that, you do still need to look at it in a more holistic point of view. Yeah, and it's not just sort of one aspect that's going to have an impact. It's thinking about it across the board. So with that in mind, though, as well, when it comes to general attention, like I want to put you in this uh, hypothetical scenario. Uh, let's pretend like you've been bought on to a new customer and uh, They've actually asked you to try and help. Their churn is not great, retention, like they're losing customers left and right. And you've been given the task now to help turn things around. What would be some of the things that you would look to do in the first two to three months with this company to try and help turn that around with them? Yeah, so it's a lot of active listening. Um, again, going back to customer success, like what what's that team hearing from the end users? Um, and then two, looking at the leadership, um, is there something wrong with the business model? Like, are we going after the wrong type of customers? Um, if, if so, then we need to recreate what that target persona looks like and then use that to influence what's going to be built for the next iteration of the user experience. Um, and then going back to what I've talked about, which is reconstructing information architecture, user experience, and then redesigning the um, in user interface as well. But the very first step is comes from the active listening and really trying to understand what's going on inside the organization as well, externally, outside, uh, what's going on with the customers. Yeah. Let's talk about that as well, like the target customers you mentioned. And uh, another scenario, like the company comes across and they realize actually they've been trying to target their own customer all along. And now it's time to sort of reconstruct who that uh, ideal customer is. What does a process look like for that? Like, how would a startup go about trying to figure out who the ideal customer profile is? Um, it's a lot of different testing. Um, you know, 
especially when you're an early stage startup, you have your first uh, you know, demonstration or first um, minimum viable product and going out testing to different user groups. Um, and this could come before development even happens. Like, you know, what, who you thought were your target market may not actually be the right fit for your product. And so this is where a lot of iteration um, and the iterative process comes in. Um, you know, you design, build, test, come back, design and build, um, understanding from uh, from your understanding of like who your target market is. And that, that changes over time. I mean, who you started off as your primary target market may not actually be the target that, that, that actually pays and stays with you um, throughout your, your um, uh, life cycle. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, like, I think this is definitely one of those things. It's, it's a tough topic when it's the early days because you definitely start out with this like really solid idea in mind at least your idea in your mind it's a solid idea uh you go out you build a product and then you realize people aren't really using it um at a later stage it's a lot easier to sort of identify and like solidify who that ideal customer profile is because you have a user base that's using and actively using your product but in early stage, like, what are some of the clever ways like, you think people could use design to avoid going down the route of building uh, the wrong things? And how are you helping companies like, at the very early stage sort of validate the idea assumption through design? Yeah. Um, so before diving into that, I also have to mention that even if you are an established organization, that they're, they are still testing out different target markets, especially if they're rolling a new uh, feature or a new product within their company. So I do want to mention that as well. Um, and now going back to your question of how do we help um, start early stage startups, you know, avoid risk of developing something that doesn't have product market fit. So that all starts with the MVP. And I think a lot of people have a misconception of what an MVP really means. Um, a lot of times people think MVP means let's build the full, full thing. <laughs> let's invest our time and money into building the full thing, launch it and see what happens. And that is the worst way to build a product because that, that's a lot of risk. I mean, like building a product and then launching it is, is just like throwing spaghetti on the wall and hoping something's going to stick. And a lot of times it, it's not going to. And so what you want to do is literally start out with the the smallest, stupidest thing that you can start testing with. Um, what we like to do at Wander is create a sign-up landing page. We haven't even designed what the product's gonna look like. We don't even know what the product is, but we have a sign-up page with the concept, um, and it, it actually looks like a legitimate, um, it's like a legitimate startup. You know, it makes it it makes the users feel like okay. The product's almost built. We're gonna be part of this like exclusive beta. This is awesome um, to see if the founders can even get the first 100 signups. And if they can't get to that first 100 signups, that's a really good indication that that is not either one, not the best target uh, for that product, or there's no use for this product at all in the market. Um, so then we go back, make some shifts and changes to the concept, 
throw it back out there on, as a, another sign-up page and again, do that process over again. Um, it's also a good way for the founders to take that, if, especially if they can get a lot of, um, a, a big number in the signups, to take that um, to invest uh, potential investors. Yeah, I, I love as well what you highlighted in, in the MVP because it definitely is that sort of misconception. And uh, I think there's, there is different definitions uh, if you ask different people when it comes to what is that minimum viable product. But uh, it's like really like at that MVP stage, it's all about validating, is there a market for the product that you're trying to build? And mm -hmm. if you can do that in smart ways without going down the route of actually uh, putting together an app uh, and actually starting to validate things early on, uh, you save yourself a lot of pain uh, and trouble down the line. And a lot of money too. I mean, if your MVP is going to take you more than a month to build, then that is not an MVP. That means you're building V1. Yeah. Uh, and how are you sort of then getting like exposure for these landing pages? Like what is the process of like, uh, are you trying to put them in front of a panel? Like are there, are there certain channels that you're reaching out to and trying to get feedback and input? Because I think that could also be one of the things like early on, even though you, you have this MVP, you have a landing page, like distribution for startups is pretty mm -hmm. difficult. So are there any things you're doing like with your companies you're working with to ensure that they are you getting the amount of eyeballs on them that is necessary to sort of validate if it's viable or not? Yeah, never underestimate the power of Facebook groups. Like I love using Facebook groups for uh, for everything that we do. Um, so that's how we get a lot of user uh, users to volunteer for testing, um, and that's how we you know help founders get their first signups as well. So. For instance, like if you're building out, um, hypothetically, uh, a SaaS product that's focused on, um, I don't know, uh, real estate, let's say. So then go join a dozen real estate groups that are going to have a, con a high concentration of your target market within the real estate industry and then send out a blast and don't be spammy. Don't just say like sign up for my new product. Just explain what you're trying to do um, and then add a link to uh, your post and see if people would be interested in signing up or even volunteering to be part of your test group. Yeah, I really like that as well. And having like, because then you have this hyper-focused audience. Uh, if you do find an active uh, group, like on Facebook, people obviously love to provide input and have a conversation there. So it's a really good uh, tip to have a hyper-focused audience. Uh, yeah, especially if it's, if it's a product that's going to add value to them in the long run, then they're most likely going to help you by giving a lot of their inputs on, on building your, on helping you build that product. Absolutely. Uh, and then, so from that stage, like, uh, what would be the next steps then that you would work through in the design process with the company? So uh, they've built this real estate product. They've understood that it's really a good product for individual real estate uh, individuals, like working solopreneurs. Uh, what would be the next step then uh, that you'd work through with your customers? Yeah, so the next step is low fidelity wireframes. So we're building out what their uh, platform is going to look like and what we're going to send off to the developers as their second uh, phase of the product development. And again, after that low fidelity, we're going back to that same group and saying like, hey, we're we're building out something really awesome. It's going to help, uh, you know, help real estate agents with X, Y, and Z, can I get a few volunteers to get some input on my, on my new product? 
Um, so going through that round of usability testing and then moving on to uh, high fidelity visual and branding and then doing another round of testing after that uh, before that gets sent off to the de development team. Yeah, very nice. And then that again, sort of like having that constant feedback loop as well. Uh, I think that's like for me, one of the biggest areas where companies go wrong is when they get to the end of having a product being built. Um, they have this founder vision in mind and then they go start building, but then lose touch of the customer along the way and forget that you need to be speaking to them at every step of this, uh, this stage because things change, markets shift, like ideas as well of what customers actually want versus how you execute on that can be vastly Exactly, different. exactly. Always be listening to your users. Yeah. So, uh, Jenny, like from your side, uh, it's it's been good having you on the show today. But uh, before we leave, like I wanted to see if there's anything that you had that you'd like to share with us today. Like how can the audience keep up to date with the work? Uh, is there sort of any last bits of advice that you'd want to leave the listeners with when it comes to trying to tackle churn and retention? Um, any last minute advice? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to reemphasize active listening, um, you know, not just within your organization, but externally with your customers um, and testing every step of the way, uh, whatever you build, don't just send it off to the dev team, test that, uh, that before <laughs> that gets launched. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, and how can they keep up to date with your work? Like, uh, is there any place that you recommend that they follow? Or Yeah, um, so you guys can follow our team at wander.studio. Um, that's W-A-N-D-R without the E. Um, and then you can also follow me, Jenny O, J-I-N-N-Y-O-H-H on social media. Yeah, very cool. Jenny, well, thanks very much for joining. It's been a pleasure having you today. And obviously, like as you mentioned, active listening is a critical component. So like, I hope the audience as well actively listens to this episode and pull something uh, insightful away from it. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.